Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, September 10th, we are studying Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. After prophesying judgment against the nations and against Judah and Jerusalem, Zephaniah turns at the close of his book to proclaim deliverance to those who call upon the name of the Lord, the God who is in the midst of his people. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Tim Stork. Pastor Stork serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan. Pastor Stork, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. It's good to be back with you. We have the close of the book of Zephaniah before us today, Pastor Stork. What should we know about the first part of his book? Any context that will help us as we read these last verses of the book today? Yeah, so these first two sections of Zephaniah have been pretty dark, um, uh, to put it nicely, I guess. Um, the first part of Zephaniah, the, the opening chapter, has to deal with the, the threat of judgment. Um, and then the second chapter, going into the third chapter, deals with God's call of repentance to his own people and to the nations as well, um, all of which, again, may or may not be heeded by the nations, um, which brings us finally to the good word, the gospel, here in this latter half that talks about um, God's promise of salvation and how he will care for the righteous remnant that is left behind. Yeah, I mean, it is, it, you know, we, a very classic book in that sense that you have the proclamation of judgment, and now comes the proclamation of deliverance for the, the repentant people of God. And it, we really do, for all the, the memorable words from the first three, two and a half chapters from, that were concerning judgment, because, I mean, chapter one has some pretty memorable words concerning the day of the Lord. Boy, Zephaniah wow. really, I mean, it's so comforting here at the end, the promises of God in all that judgment that God is going to be faithful to his people, faithful to his promises, to his, his promise to save. We talked a little bit about this yesterday in verse five of this chapter, you know, the Lord is within Jerusalem. That was judgment yesterday. Today, that's going to be good news. It's repeated more than once that the Lord is in the midst of his people. So got a beautifully comforting text before us this morning. Let's just jump right in. Let's read the text and dig into all these wonderful gospel promises that our Lord has. So we're in Zephaniah 3, beginning at verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, And serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. 
nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord." That's our text for today. That's Zephaniah 3, verses 9 to 20. So, Pastor Stork, the, the transition here in verse 9 is rather abrupt. We, we go from judgment in verse 8 to now talk of deliverance in verse 9. And it, it's given in the language that the Lord's going to change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. What What's the transition and, and what's the message that the Lord is giving here in verse 9? When you look at verse 9... Um, when we hear that word change, it, it's almost like um, talking about a turn. So, for example, turning east wind to a west wind or simply changing an evil heart to another heart, to a good heart or impure lips to pure lips. Um, it, it's almost this immediate 180 degree change. Um, there is no just extended time that this happens. It happens all, you know, at once. Um, when we hear about that speech of the people to a pure speech, it really reminds me of that speech that comes out of our hearts. Um, when we look in the Gospels and what our Lord says about what comes out of the heart, which is the thing that makes people unclean. The, the evil, the hatred, the sin that comes out of the heart and is spoken by our lips. And yet, our Lord is the one who makes our speech pure by his gospel, by his grace. I think a really good example of seeing this is from Isaiah's prophecy, from um, the opening chapters of Isaiah, when he is in the presence of the Lord in the temple, and he knows that he is a sinful person of a sinful people with unclean lips. And the only thing that can cleanse his lips is that coal taken out of the fire um, by the angel who brings it and touches him on the lips. And it is only then that Isaiah can speak that pure word of God. And he does the same thing. Um, for the people of Israel here in, in this conversion that happens, and he does this for us as well, that we go from being a people of unclean speech to a pure speech um, 
all out of the grace of God. Mm. I think that that talk of, you know, impure speech to pure speech and some of the images that you've brought up, particularly that, that Mark 7 one is really important that, you know, it is when the Lord gives us a new heart that that's where the, the transformation of our speech begins because we speak out of what's there in our heart. So this, you know, this transformation of speech that's happening here is is more than just an outward thing, but is really indicating an inward thing going on. I mean, I think of the the prophet Isaiah who, who talks about the people who honors them honors God with their lips, but their hearts are far from their from him. And here Zephaniah I don't think has that in mind at all, that that what's issuing forth from their lips is indicative of what the Lord has done in their heart already. The as, as you're talking about, you know, that change that happens and this matter of speech, one of the places my mind went to that I hadn't thought of until just as you were talking uh, is in First Corinthians 12, where, where Paul talks about, you know, no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You know, apart from the grace of God given in his word that calls us to faith, the only things that we would utter from our lips are curses. But when the mm-hmm. Spirit transforms our hearts and gives us that faith in Christ, then we we confess Jesus is Lord, and then I mean that, and that's where it starts. And then from there, the the pure speech begins to to flow forth. So I mean, I think that I think that passage applies here as well. Yeah, um, the other the other thought that came into my mind as you were bringing this into to life for us is the fact that after the sermon when we use divine service setting three in our congregation, I'm reminded of the words of the offertory, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That it yeah. all starts again in the heart and, and making it pure and clean. And then from that clean heart, being able to speak words of grace, being able to confess the Christian faith, as you said from First Corinthians. Well, and I mean, you know, the offertory from Psalm 51, which we, we sing, we sing here that we sing that here in Smithville as well, the create me a clean heart. You know, it continues with those words that we use in Matins and which I often pray before I, I preach a sermon, you know, oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So, again, that that same transition happens. The Lord creates in us clean hearts and then he opens our lips uh, so Romans chapter 10 puts these two things together as well, that, that what we believe in the heart and confess with our mouths go hand in hand. And, and so when the Lord transforms our hearts, when he gives us that new heart, then he gives us new speech. And, and I think, I mean, as, as we're going through some of these passages together, it's, it's connecting some other dots for me as well, because in, in each of these passages, Psalm 51, 1 Corinthians 12, it is the work of the Spirit who, who does these things. You know, he's the one that, that calls us to faith and, and enlightens us with his gifts, to use the, the language of the catechism, and that gift of that new speech. Uh, you tell me what you th- I don't know if you if you thought about this as I was reading not only verse nine but but really the all the way through verse thirteen of Zephaniah three. A lot of this sounds like Pentecost to me, and I don't I don't know if you ca- maybe we can think about that as we read through some of these things. But the you know the the speech being changed, you've got the calling mm-hmm. upon the name of the Lord, which factors into Peter's sermon. You've got this matter of people coming from the kind of the ends of the earth. 
and, and the work of the spirit being tied in, as we've said, I mean, a lot of this, it sounds a lot like what happens at Pentecost, at least as maybe a, a, one of the fulfillments of what Zephaniah has in mind here. So maybe we can, we can kind of think about that as we go through these verses. But as, as we're just going from one verse to another here, I, I think a lot of this does tie together in the work of the spirit. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. You know, given the fact that you brought up Pentecost, you almost have to go back to the Tower of Babel and what occurs there in God spreading the people across the face of the world about changing their languages and the fact that when you get to Pentecost, then you have this uniting of all of these different nations around one message around one speech around one God um, that he ultimately is the one who shows his grace and his mercy to us and that we should fear, love and trust in him above all things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that matter, you know, the dispersed ones that we're going to talk about here in verse 10, right? That's, that's Babel. And then the Lord's drawing them back together in Zephaniah three, bringing that to fulfillment mm-hmm. in acts two on the day of Pentecost. I, I mean, I think there's, there's lots of connections we can make. Let's move into verse 10. It says from beyond okay. the rivers of, of Cush. So in, in terms of geography, why, why the mention of the rivers of Cush here in verse 10 is the place that the Lord's going to gather people from. Yeah, most likely in the time period that Zephaniah is writing in, um, Cush and the rivers of Cush would have, which would have been in um, Africa near the area around Egypt um, today, and also Sudan and Ethiopia, which will give our listeners kind of an idea of um, where this is taking place, or at least where these words are, are centered, was for many people the edge of the ancient world. Um, from their perspective, there wasn't much beyond Egypt and Ethiopia and Sudan, what we know today. Um, and so for them to have imagined anything further than that really would not have, wouldn't have been possible very easily. Um, and so God here is going to be gathering together um, his worshipers from all over the ends of the earth, Um, that it's not just going to be this small little group of people, um, but that he is going to gather in folks from all ends of the world. Yeah, that that gathering of God's people, and again, from beyond where they, you know, that's where they think that the world ends, basically. So from everywhere, as far as you can think, God is going to bring his people. And, and the phrasing here, I think, is, is is doesn't seem accidental to me, where he, he refers to you know his worshipers as the daughter of my dispersed ones. And normally you see a phrase like that and you're expecting something like the daughter of Zion or the daughter of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And here to, you know, the daughter of my dispersed ones, I mean, just thinking through Zephaniah's context, preaching not long before the exile and, and thinking about the people of in exile, picking up words like this. I, I think those words have to bring a lot of hope and comfort to those who've experienced the judgment of God to know that yes, the daughter of the dispersed ones, I might not be in Zion and Jerusalem right now, but the, mm. I'm still a part of God's people and he is going to gather me back. I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of comfort there in just that phraseology, the daughter of my dispersed ones. Yeah. I would say that as we get a little bit further on into chapter three, towards the end, there may have even have been a sense of the, you know, the children of Israel 
um, the people of Judah who believed, oh my gosh, you know, God has left us, he's abandoned us, we can't go and worship anymore, you know, and doing the, the feasts and gathering together around the temple, and yet here God again comforts them with this fact that I am with you. I'm with the daughters of my dispersed ones. I'm I'm with your children. Um, and as much as it looks like I have completely abandoned you, I'm here, and I'm going to care for you. Hmm. Right. The the one who, who brought the judgment upon the people is the one who's going to deliver the people as well. That, that even, and I think, you know, a verse like this really reminds us of the purpose of God's judgment in the first place. It was never to cast them aside completely or out of some sort of uh, meanness on his part, but but rather it was ultimately a call to repentance that he, you know, if we can speak theologically about it, he exercised the law, he spoke that law to drive them to repentance so that he could speak these words of gospel to call them back to himself. And, and even if they were as far away as you could imagine, farther than that, perhaps, the Lord's still going to call his people back, even from beyond the, the rivers of Cush, and to be a part of this, you know, worshiping group of people. And I think that's that's going to become important later in the text, that these mm-hmm. people are called worshipers. I mean, part of the exile and the tragedy of it was that the temple had been destroyed and they couldn't go to Jerusalem to worship anymore. And so the the promise of worship again, that's, that's a big one. Maybe we had a bit of a, a, a taste of that in the early days of, of the pandemic when, when churches weren't gathering together. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure this, this happened in your congregation as well, that great longing that people experienced to gather together in the house of God, multiply that. And that's what the people of Jerusalem were feeling. And that's the, the great comfort that's here in this promise in verse 10. Yes. Uh, you know, the other thing that was coming to mind as you were mentioning this is, you know, God is the fact that God is the one who brought judgment upon his people because of their sin. Mm-hmm. And here God is also the one who proclaims forgiveness and shows his grace to these his people. Mm-hmm. And it, it does remind me the fact that, you know, God in the Old Testament is not just this angry, spiteful, you know, God who wants to hurt his own people and the people around him. But we see just as well the forgiveness and the love and the mercy and the grace that he shows his people and to the nations as well, especially in a text like this, Mm. um, that the people of the Old Testament are ultimately saved by the grace of God, just like we are in the New. Right. And I think, you know, I mean, certainly in verse 10, where you know, he talks about these people from beyond Cush, his worshipers, the daughter of his dispersed ones, should have us thinking first and foremost of the exiled people of God from Judah. But given mm-hmm. the rest of, you know, Zephaniah and the rest of the scriptures, for sure, that the the mission to the Gentiles, the reach of God's word beyond the people of Israel who have the blood of Abraham in them, like, I think that's in view here as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, Pastor Stork, as as we continue, and I think some of what you're what we've been talking about, where this you know this matter of God is the one who brings the judgment, but also then brings the deliverance, flows into verse eleven in this mention of of not being put to shame, and and that thought of shame came up in the previous text. You know, those in verse five, it was the unjust there in Jerusalem that God was there; they knew no shame. Now it seems they've been these these people that he's talking to here are the repentant ones who are ashamed of their sins. And the Lord says, I'm going to take that away as well. Take us into to that matter of shame and, and the rest of verse 11. Yeah. So when we look at um, verse 11 and talking about shame on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst, your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. You know, when you look at the people of the Old Testament, I would say that, you know, one of their greatest sins was their rebellion from God, how they turned away from him over and over again. And the fact that it brought them, it brought them shame, um, that they were to be God's people. And the fact is that they failed over and over again. Um, by whether it was following after other gods, whether it was the Baals or Asherah, um, whether it was setting up monuments within the temple, or you know even just setting up other places of worship throughout Israel as well. Um, but that shame that they have um, is now going to be removed. Mm-hmm. Um, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty. Um, the fact that we are reminded that our Lord has, oh, how best to put it, um, our Lord has taken away from us and from them the, the things that we may find ourselves being proud of apart from him, um, that ultimately our our hope and our faith and the the gifts that we have and the the eternal life that we have is is ultimately from Him. Mm. Um, you know, we we are a, a hurting and broken people, as were the people in Israel as well. Um, but knowing that their shame is covered by Jesus in His blood can bring and does bring great comfort and hope. Yeah, the, the Lord takes away that which we would place our trust in apart from him, and, and he gives us then himself as our solid ground for faith. And and you see, I think, in, in these verses where he talks about removing from your midst the proudly exultant ones, and then into verse 12, leaving in your midst people humble and lowly, you see that, that theme that's present in many places in the scriptures of a, a great reversal, the place that my mind always goes to is the Magnificat where Mary sings about bringing down the the proud and lifting up the lowly. And, and we've got that same thing going on here in, in the prophet Zephaniah that the Lord would, would, you know, get rid of that pride, which would separate us from him and instead mm-hmm. exalt us in him to let him be the honor for us. Not anything that we've done, but, but him alone, that's that, and and where does that happen? You know, verse verse twelve. Here comes that that name of the Lord again. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, 
which again, you know, that brings my mind back to Pentecost and the way Peter preaches from from Joel chapter two. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be. Yeah, and, and that's such a beautiful promise. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about you know talking about this pride and the the proudly exalted ones. You know, when you look at the New Testament and you see Jesus's conversations with the chief priests and the Pharisees and the leaders of the people, you could tell, and you you see in those scripture passages so often that you know they were more proud about the fact that they were children of Abraham. Um, you know, nothing could happen to us because we're children of Abraham, and we can trace our lineage back to Abraham. And what then is their faith in? Is it the fact that they solely are children of Abraham? Or is it the fact that they believe and trust in the promise that had been given to Abraham? And then you see, of course, the people that Jesus reaches out to, um, the folks who are receptive to the gospel, um, the people who are hurting. You have the, the woman at the well who has been hurting you know, because of her sinfulness and the things that she had done. We see the children that the Lord calls to himself um, to be not only believers, but also to be examples to the disciples and to us about what faith looks like. We have the hurting and the broken and the sick um, and all of the different sinners that Jesus approaches and spends time with. And instead of choosing people that are proud and haughty and full of themselves, Jesus reaches out to the humble and the lowly, and those are the people that he lifts up. Right. And, and those who are proud and exalted, or self-exalted, perhaps we should say, you know, he talked to them too. The, the Pharisees received plenty of his teaching. Uh, they just, they were not willing to consider themselves as humble, as lowly. They were not willing to consider themselves as those who need the refuge that's found in the name of the Lord. They thought that they were okay on their own, that their righteousness before God would cut it. And and when that's the attitude that people have when they hear the word of the Lord, then that word of the Lord speaks the judgment that we've heard Zephaniah preaching all along. But when mm-hmm. when people hear the word of the Lord recognizing that they're sinners, you know, brought to that lowliness by the word of God itself, then they hear it with joy. There's great comfort and there's that, that exaltation. But again, that exaltation only comes because of the gifts of Christ. If it comes from us, it will only lead to our downfall. But when we see our, that we're, no, that's actually where I am. I have fallen down and, and I don't deserve anything. That's when we receive the gifts of Christ and he is the one to lift us up to take us out of that shame and to bestow his his honor upon us. And and that's the beautiful thing that we're seeing Zephaniah preach. And we're going to hear more of it on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron this morning on KFUO. We are talking the end of Zephaniah 3 with Pastor Tim Stork. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, September 10th. We are studying Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 to 20 with Pastor Tim Stork. He serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan. Pastor Stork, prior to the break, we left off in between verses 12 and 13. And the, the thought really continues from one verse to the next, that they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. And then it goes on to describe what that life will be like there in Israel. They're not going to do injustice. They're not going to speak lies. There's not going to be a deceitful mouth because they're grazing and lying down unafraid. What What's the prophet saying there in verse 13? Well, the first thing I think we need to understand is the prophet is not saying that these people are going to be perfect and without sin here and now. Um, but they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. I think we want to understand, first and foremost, that these people that God has still called to be himself, to, to be his own, are still sinners as we live here in this world. But the fact is, um, he means that the virtues and the power of faith, like John says in his first epistle, he says, no one born of God commits sin, for God's nature abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Um, knowing, though, that we are also born of God through faith, um, and so there is forgiveness for us. There is um redemption for us and and for those people of God who he has called to be his own. Um, And then this great promise at the very end of verse 13, where he says, they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Um, That because he is their God, nothing shall make them afraid anymore. And, And I don't know what better word we can receive out of Zephaniah. I mean, he's got a lot of great stuff to say here at the end of his prophecy, but the fact that because God is the one who is their shepherd, who will lead his people, who will bring them to a place of green pastures, to graze, to lie down, and there is no reason to be afraid now because they are his own. Yeah, you, you certainly have that image there of Jesus as the good shepherd, the grazing, lying down, being unafraid. The words of, of Psalm 23 easily come to mind there as, as the picture that the Lord is, is giving. In terms of the first part of the verse where it's describing what that life is like, I'm reminded a little bit of the conversation that I had yesterday with Pastor Jacob Dandy about the, the first couple of verses of Zephaniah chapter 3. And he made the point that you, you see that in the first couple of verses that the people have hardened their heart against the word of the Lord. And the fruit of that is that the, the priests, the prophets, the officials, the judges have all corrupted their vocations. And I think what we're seeing in today's text then is the, you know, the opposite of that, that now that the Lord has worked 
this change of heart that is it well it results in that change of speech that we were talking about and it starts to work mm-hmm. in their lives as well and i mean i think that's you know the matter of speaking no lies not having a deceitful mm-hmm. tongue here part of that is the pure speech that we were talking about earlier which again starts with the confession of who christ is and, and certainly yeah. you know it doesn't involve being sinless but when i do sin my pure speech is to say i have sinned please forgive me and so you know i think you you do have this picture of the people of god again having been transformed by the word of god and now it does begin to show forth in their lives not not in a sinless way by any means but you do start to see it as as you brought up from first john i mean that's that's a great example and again you know thinking through what happens in terms of pentecost uh, to to make that reference again, I mean, after the day of Pentecost, when you look at the the life of the early church, you do see the fruit of the word in the life of the church and the way that they give freely to each other to take care of each other. Those those things are very evident. Was there sin in the early church? You bet. <laughs> and the book of Acts has those examples for us as well. Uh, but that, that pure speech, that confession of Christ, and then that flows out into the love of the neighbor is certainly there in the early church. And it, it would have been present in Zephaniah's day as well. And any more thoughts on those verses, Pastor Pastor Stork, before we move into the kind of the next, there's a bit of a, a new section, I think, in verse 14, but I, these verses really are, are quite rich, verses 9 to 13. Yeah, I think the other thing that comes to play um, that I was just thinking about was St. Paul's words to the church at Rome from chapter 8 in, in regards to knowing that these people have nothing to fear, and we're reminded what St. Paul says. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? Um, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And then that, you know, he goes on and he says, who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then, of course, that wonderful word in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword, um, that we are, for our sake, are being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Um, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mm. I mean, that is such a wonderful passage to know that as his children, as the ones that he has chosen, we truly have nothing to be afraid of uh, as Christians, um, that he watches over us, that he has been sacrificed for our sins. He has defeated sin, death, and the devil. And really, what do we have to be afraid of? Nothing, as Zephaniah says, and, and I think as St. Paul says in, in Romans 8. And, and with a promise like that, what would you do but sing? <laughs> and that's, that's where the prophet Zephaniah takes us now. And these are, I think, some of the most memorable words, again, that we get in the prophet Zephaniah. And, and certainly just the joy begins to overflow here. Take us into to verse 14 of chapter 3. Yeah. Um, verse 14, he gives us three names given to the church. He calls her the daughter of Zion, 
He calls her Ruth Israel, and then he calls her the, the daughter of Jerusalem. And single out, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Um, rejoice and exult with your whole being, ultimately. And, and where does that joy flow from? That, that joy for them and for us flows out of that living faith that has been implanted to us by the Holy Spirit. Um, we can always, we rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Um, that no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what was going on here, um, especially as the children of Israel are being restored, they can shout and exult with everything that they have, with their whole being, for what God has done for them. This verse has always struck me as, as how Zephaniah comes full circle here from where he started. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, the command from Zephaniah was, Be silent before the Lord God, because his day is drawing near and judgment is coming. And and I recognize mm-hmm. in my sin... You know, all I can do is is be quiet. I'm reminded of the you know the words of Paul in, in Romans three that that the law of God you know stops every mouth before Him. But then there's that that change when when we when the Lord has convicted us our sin, brought us to repentance, and then He speaks that beautiful gospel promise to us that He has saved us by His grace. Suddenly, our lips are open again, and I think this maybe is a part of that transformed speech as well. That the silence before the law now changes to the joyful singing and shouting because of the the good news of the gospel. And it's just, I mean, it's amazing to see how the Lord you know brings us full circle here in Zephaniah from that silence over our sins now to joy in his salvation and singing because of his salvation. There we go. Silence over sins, singing over salvation. We've got four S's there. That, that, I like it when that happens. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it helps me memor- remember it at least. So, so silence, from, silence over sins has been transformed into singing over salvation, and, and that's the good news of, of Zephaniah. And it's because I think this connects very well to that passage you were bringing out from Romans 8, Pastor Stork. It happens because the Lord has taken away the judgment against you. There's, in the words of Paul, there's no more condemnation. I think you quoted that, and and that's what what is going on here in Zephaniah three as well. Yeah, um, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Um, who can condemn you? Again, going back to Romans eight um, verses twenty eight and following, there is nothing that can condemn us. Um, no harm can come to His church. He has cleared away all of the enemies that seek to destroy us and that seek to destroy his church. Um, Yes, as we live in this world, the church continues to struggle. You know, she is not this huge group of people that are so united and are moving the whole world this way and that, but they are, like the Lord says earlier back in verse 12, there, there are people who are humble and lowly, um, and, and yet for us, we have, we have nothing to fear from our enemies um, because the Lord is the one who has cleared them away. And so whether we look like a, a humble and lowly congregation or church body or even just within the face of the context of the world and everything that's going on, and yes, we may not fight with 
swords and weapons and those types of things, but we don't need to, you know, because the Lord has already fought with us for something greater than anything that we could have here on earth, and that's with his own body and blood given and shed for us on the tree of the cross. I think that that reference to to the sacrament is is perfectly in line with what Zephaniah's got here because he at the end of verse fifteen and it's going to come up again in verse seventeen. It's the King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. The Lord is with you. the The name Emmanuel comes to mind, and and that's how the Lord is with us today is in His body and His blood in the holy sacrament. And that does take away fear. As the, as the text continues into verses 16 and 17, seems that there's a bit of contrast there between the joy on the one hand and then fear on the other. Can you help us into that, that contrast that's being brought out here by Zephaniah? Yeah, so um, let's just reread those words just for a moment. So he says, um, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And so when we look at verse 16, we come to an understanding that, yes, fear and joy are opposites of one another, Um especially in respect to misplaced fear. Um, So what are we really putting our fear in? Is it the things of this world? Or are we putting our fear in the place where it is properly set? Um, Fear in the Lord. First commandment, fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Um, And as we fear, love, and trust in God, our joy is made right, um, and our love towards our neighbor um, it will be made right, so that we can go about serving those who are around us. Um, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing as we remember him and keep our faith in him as well. Mm. That language there at the end of verse 17, you know, the the matter of God rejoicing over you with gladness and then exulting over you with loud singing. That's a that's a fantastic image to know that and, and a fantastic reality to know that that God rejoices with me, for me, for his church. I mean, that's that's a beautiful thing to think about. That, and, and what a comfort that is, you know, God's not. He's not just sort of like sitting there casually observing. <laughs> he's he's rejoicing uh-huh. over this. And that's such a, a beautiful picture of God to have in our minds. Yeah, I, it is. Uh, it, it's not something, you know, up until we've started to have this conversation, it, it's not really something that I've thought a whole lot about. But, you know, to not just have God sitting there inactive, but... Here we have a God who rejoices over us with gladness. Um, it, it joys him to see the faith that we've been given, the, the love that we show to our neighbor, the faith that we remain in by the Holy Spirit. Um, it, it brings joy and a smi- I guess you could almost say a smile to his face um, that God is 
happy that we are his children and that he is our God. Um, I guess another way of looking at it would, as we think about God as our father, um, as the scriptures clearly tell us, that here is our father who rejoices over his children. He has this smile on his face because of what he has done for us and what we have received from him. Mm. I mean, it's hard It's hard to, to think about the God rejoicing over his people without thinking about, and we've, we've kind of talked about this already, the way that Jesus welcomed tax collectors and, quote, sinners in the Gospels, he did that by eating with them, and and I don't I don't want to sound too casual, but by partying with them, you might you know by rejoicing with them that a, a feast, a, a meal together, that's a joyous event, and that's how you know when the Lord receives these sinners and and they re- have received Him in faith, what's the result? He's actually there, a part of the joyous celebration, which you know I think again that ties us to the Lord's Supper that He comes to us in the supper. As the meal, yes, but also as the host and the host who joyfully welcomes us to his table. And I mean, you know, again, that that picture of the Lord rejoicing that that he, you know, I mean, if, when you picture Jesus, that it's okay to picture him smiling. <laughs> I mean, certainly there's there's times where, where he, he's got maybe a more serious look, but it's okay to think of Jesus as smiling and and as as one who is joyful. That's how... Uh, is it John 10, I think, where Jesus talks about you know, that, that he wants his, or John 15, I can't remember where now, but he wants his joy to be his disciples, his joy, and he gives it to his church as well. And that's, I mean, that's just a beautiful thing to, to think about God giving us his own joy that he's having. He allows us to share it as well is a, a very comforting thought. And, and the other thing that really strikes me about these verses is the way that you have the, really, I think, the full range of, of human emotion that you might experience in this this joyous gospel. On the one hand, you, you've got the idea of you know loud singing and shouting and, and great partying almost. But then on the other hand, you also have the matter of, you know, quieting you by his love. That that there are times where I, I take all of this in, this gospel that, that I am saved by God's grace, and I'm just struck with, with awe and wonder and I'm quieted by his love. I guess it's a... You can see both the shepherds on Christmas, how they're bouncing around telling everybody, but you can also see Mary, who's treasuring all these things in her hearts. And and both of those are joyous reaction to the good news of the gospel. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful example. My wife has a picture that she keeps on our refrigerator at home of the, the birth of our Lord and an artist's depiction of it. And it's really interesting because baby Jesus is depicted laying there in the manger fast asleep, and Mary's kind of off in the background, and she's also fast asleep. And there is Joseph sitting at the edge of the manger, looking down at the baby Jesus with almost this sense of awe in his eyes. Like, there are no words that can describe, you know, not only what he's gone through and what Mary has gone through, but also what this baby lying here in the manger is going to go through as, as the savior of the world. And and you're right. You know, especially as, you know, sinners who have been redeemed by grace, there are definitely times when, you know, you hear the words of the absolution or you receive forgiveness from one of your fellow believers in Christ. And sometimes 
there is nothing to be said. All you can do is sit there and soak in that love and that, you know, joy that comes with knowing that you've been forgiven, that there are no words, no words to be said. Yeah, because God has quieted you with his love. What a, what a beautiful picture. In in verse 18, Pastor Stork, we move back to what we, we brought this up earlier. The matter of worship seems to come back, where the Lord talks mm-hmm. about gathering people to a festival. What's, what's he talking about there in verse 18? Yeah, so verse 18 looks like Zephaniah is taking us back to the many festivals that would have taken place in Jerusalem, especially the ones that the people would have been required to come and celebrate, for example, the Passover every year. Um, And, of course, now that the temple is gone, where are they supposed to go worship? What are they supposed to go and do now? And, you know, it's kind of that whole understanding and thought of, oh my gosh, our, our place of worship, the place that God has told us that he's going to be here is gone what happens to us now? And believing that possibly God truly has forsaken them. But the fact is, he hasn't. They won't suffer reproach anymore. Um, it reminds me of Isaiah's words in Isaiah 49, where he asked the question, can a nursing woman forget her child, or can a woman forget her nursing child? And Isaiah says, yes, but will God forget you? No, of course not. Um, He won't forget his people. He will continue to be there with him, um, with them. And so even though the temple may be destroyed, even though their ability to, you know, celebrate the Passover and the other festivals may not be able to happen, God is still there with them. Zephaniah wraps things up in in verses 19 by returning to some of the themes that we've talked about, the matter of the Lord taking care of the oppressors, the enemies. We get language that certainly sounds reminiscent of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels where, you know, saving the lame, gathering the outcast, and then more of this, you know, bringing his people back together. Help us into these last two verses of the text. Yeah, so verses 19 and 20 are actually very similar. It's almost like he repeats himself in verse 20 from what he said before in verse 19. But again, God reminds us, at that time, I will deal with your oppressors. God is the one who will bring about our salvation. Um, It is in his time that he will take care of those who seek to oppress the church. And ultimately, he is the one who will save. Be it the, the lame, he will gather together the outcasts, the the people from the far reaches of the world or those that the world has considered to be, you know, untouchable in a way that God is going to gather them together. And again, here is that changing their shame over their sin is now again going to be turned into praise and renowned in all the earth. Um, That God covers our shame. He covers our sin. And because of that, We can rejoice in all the world. We can tell the world the good news of what Jesus has done for us. We can praise his name forevermore. 
Pastor Stork, we have about three and a half minutes left on the morning. Reflecting on this part of Zephaniah and, and even the, the ministry of Zephaniah as a whole, that move from judgment to deliverance, from law to gospel, help us to, again, to see this text and, and to see, especially in this text, our Savior Christ crucified. Uh, as, you know, we look through all of Zephaniah and we see the Lord, um, you know, his threat of judgment, that call to repentance, promise of salvation, there is hope for broken sinners. There is hope for those who are outside of the church, who may have rejected the Lord. There is hope for those who may feel like they are hopeless. And yes, we may um, receive judgment. We may be convicted of our sin. The Lord may show us what we have done wrong um, as he shows us our sins. But ultimately, he does all of that to show us his grace, um, to, to show us our Savior, to show us Jesus. And having shown us Jesus, having given him to us by the Holy Spirit, through baptism, in the Lord's Supper, through the words of absolution, we know that our sins are forgiven, that he has called us to be his own, that we have nothing to fear, and because of that, we can rejoice, we can exult, we can sing to all the world and to our Lord that he has redeemed us and that he is the one who will keep us as his own and who will continue to keep his promises and to bring us into his everlasting presence. Pastor Tim Stork is pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan, helping us today with Zephaniah 3, verses 9 to 20. Pastor Stork, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. I really enjoyed it. The Lord has changed silence over our sins into singing over his salvation. Rejoice, sing aloud over the good news that Christ is your Savior, dear Christian. Soak it in, be quieted by his love, and know the full joy of the salvation that he gives to you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Starting next week, we will be getting a series on the book of Ezekiel. So if you have any questions about that book ahead of time, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you and I'd love to respond to any questions you might have either on air or via special podcast episodes. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.